You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, it's a great way to start our study in the Gospel of John. Uh, we were in John 13 last week, but more as a first-of-the-year sermon rather than the introduction to uh, the Gospel of John. My name is Brad Talley. I'm the teaching elder here at Grace. If you are new today, and we know that there are a number of you who are here for the first time, we come in before the service begins, and that's how we know who's uh, first-time visitors. Uh, the, the, the regular show up about 10 or a little after, you know. So um, we're glad that you're here. Uh, I want to say to those of you who are relatively new to Grace, uh, David already mentioned it in announcements, but Grace Connection starts next Sunday morning. Now think about this. If you're relatively new, you're thinking, I'm pretty interested in what's going on in this place, and I'd like to examine it a little more closely. Now's the time to jump in. Uh, it is almost a two-month process from the beginning of Grace Connection until the time that you become a member here at Grace. And look, we I hope you appreciate that, that we're making sure that our body is... We have members who are regenerate, born-again believers, brothers and sisters in Christ, and that we understand what God is doing in this place, how the leadership is structured, what we believe, what we don't believe. One of the things we talk about in the class is that there are doctrines that we hold with a very tight fist, and there are doctrines that are more open-handed. We have positions on a lot of these open-handed doctrines, but we don't look at those and say, you know, these people are not believers. But we hold some very tightly, and you'll want to know about some of those differences. So if you are in any way considering membership at Grace, or if you just want to know more about what we believe and how we function, uh, then please jump in next week. The next Grace Connection class is, is presently scheduled to begin after Easter. So that's a long time, last Sunday in April. So you can think that's almost five months out before you could become a member. And so there are lots of opportunities if you are a member to serve. Other opportunities to serve if you're not a member. Um, but uh, we would prefer that you jump all the way in. If this is the place God wants you, we need you. We're the body of Christ. And if there's any part that's not functioning like it ought to, then you're somewhat limited. So let's get together as the body and, and serve the Lord. So next week, uh, Grace Connection. Also, this morning, you may have noticed on your way in, we have these really awesome journals on John, uh, a plain black one for the guys, a really frilly one for the ladies. It's a, wait a minute, I'm not supposed to say that in the 21st century, am I? But hey, you can choose anyone you want to. Um, so, no, you that's more relevant than you would imagine this morning. Uh, um, so, if, and if you, look, I know this is disaster about to happen in saying this, but if you want one of these journals from the very first day, they're in the lobby, somebody in your family can slip out and get one or two. And one thing is for sure, if you don't, we, we ordered a hundred of these. Uh, I'll, I'll say what I was going to in just a moment. 
these cost us $3.50 each. Please don't put on your check designated tithe and then $3.50. If you want to put 25 to a, uh, to 50, that's great. We would love to repl replenish that line in the in, in the budget. Um, but don't pay 350, you know, unless it's cash. All right, for these. Um, everything's coming out wrong this morning. It could be one of those days, which is quite all right. Uh, at least they're entertaining, right? You might well, I didn't learn anything about the Bible, but it was funny. <laughs> so, uh, what I was going to say is, if you don't get these before the selfish people, they will absolutely be gone. <laughs> so, that's that. What? Put your name in it. That's right. Put your name in it, or on the front, or in, in the front page. Uh, put your name in case one gets is left and it's just laying around. We want to know whose it is. So, let's transition our thinking to the Gospel of John. If, if someone were to come up to you and say, look, I, just recently I've become interested in spiritual things. I don't care anything about God or I never have, but all of a sudden I am. I'd like to read the Bible, but I have no idea where to begin. What would you recommend? John. Almost certainly you would say the Gospel of John, right? It, what if someone said, I'm a believer, but I've never really gone that deep in the Word, and I'm, I'm interested in understanding a lot more than I, I do now. Where would you recommend them to go? Romans. <laughs> well, the Romans is a good one. Uh, but the Gospel of John is a great place to send someone uh, who is wondering, where is it I'm going to learn about God at deeper levels? Now, look, I realize some of you might say, I, I, what I would say is this. I, I would say, read, start in the Gospel of John, read all the way through the book of the Bible, and then go back to Matt. I mean, all the way through the New Testament, then go back to Matthew and read all the way through the New Testament. Again, I know some would say, okay, after you read through from John on, go back to Genesis. And that's a legitimate place to send them. But, you know, once they get about midway through Exodus, life's going to be a lot different. So if you can just keep them there for a little bit to begin building knowledge and this understanding, then I would, uh, I think you would be doing a very good thing for your brother or sister. Why? For starters, it makes the case for Jesus' divinity as clearly as any other place in Scripture. Also, John is simple enough for the biblically uninformed, but at the same time deep enough to challenge the most mature believers. In John 5.39, Jesus makes the breathtakingly bold claim that all Scripture points to him. It's not, there's some morality, there's, there's some good character traits that you want to follow, but as we read in the Jesus Story Bible book, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones, Jesus is the only hero in the Bible. All of scripture points to Jesus. So it doesn't take long to realize that John presents Jesus as the one who could not have been a good man or a prophet with a Messiah or a messianic complex. Either he was God or he was a horrible person or 
possibly he was a lunatic. C.S. Lewis probably said it best. I'm, I'm not as big on that because Jesus is so, his teachings were so brilliant, so profound that it's hard to say this man was crazy. They were so consistent, coherent. You can't find anyone's teachings that once you read them all together and understand what he meant in the context, that is more uh, profound and true. So if you're not familiar with the following quote from Mere Christianity, you'll be glad that you know about it. A lot of you are familiar. But Lewis's quote could have been a summary of the teaching in the Gospel of John, especially chapter 7. Quote, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I do not accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. That's pretty, that's funny to me. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now, it would not be surprising if Lewis made this statement after reading John's gospel. Lewis' purpose in making such a statement would be to answer silly objections to Jesus' divinity. He was trying to get to the nub of the matter, as as he would have said, with the reader. His desire for you, the reader, of course, is to believe Once again, perhaps he took his cues from John, who, near the very end of his book, gave the purpose for writing his gospel. John 20, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have Life in his name. One of the biggest challenges for anyone teaching through the book of John in anything close to approximating a thorough level is how to introduce the book. I mean, believe me, we could be introducing this book for months. For instance, you'll notice in John 20 verse 30 that Jesus or that John talked about Jesus Signs. He did many signs. Jesus and John, instead of saying that Jesus performed miracles, he says that he performed signs. What is the deal about that? Why? Uh, We'll cover it more thoroughly when we get to John 2, where the first of the seven signs will be described. There are seven signs in John. Is that significant? That number significant? How? What about the word believe, which he uses? 98 times. Believe, pistuo, the Greek, 
to believe. And actually, it, it means to believe into, which we'll come to also in the course of our study of John. How reliable is John's eyewitness testimony anyway? Testimony that he holds up in his purpose statement at the, as the basis of his claims. See what I mean? I've just scratched the surface. So probably I'll be introducing the gospel of John all the way to the very end. There's so, it's so much bigger than just the verses that we're going to read which are profound. We'll deal with all these big picture topics and themes as we work our way through John. But for, for now, we're going to address today's text, John 1, 1 through 5. Except that we really have to read the first 18 verses in our corporate reading. We need to read the prologue. Uh, John introduces Jesus in these 18 verses as the incarnate word of God. Co-eternal, co-equal Coexistent, coexistent with the Father. John will not call Jesus the Word again after verse 14, where he tells us the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. In this 18-verse prologue to his gospel, John's, as it is all the way through the book, his simplicity of vocabulary and grammar coupled with the profound theology give glory to the one who revealed God's glory to mankind. That is, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And when I say John's gospel, I mean the, the, the gospel written by the beloved disciple, John, son of Zebedee. He reclined next to the Lord at the Last Supper. Knowing what you already know about this magnificent book, far more than just what you've heard me say this morning, absorb the beauty and the depth of John's words as we read these first 18 verses of John 1. It's our custom here at Grace to stand for the reading of Scripture, and so I would ask you if you would, please, out of respect for the Word, to stand. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Ironic. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. How tragic. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. How glorious. Who were born, not of blood, 
nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let's pray. Father, when we read a text like this, we simply marvel at your word. There's so much more than we are able to take in, much less comprehend. And yet, we get it. Because of the Spirit who we will read about in large measure in the farewell address that comes later in our study. Thank you for opening our hearts and minds Jesus, and may he be lifted high and glorified in our time together this morning. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Thank you and be seated. The prologue to John's gospel gives the big picture view of what will follow. When you read verses 1, 14, and 18 together, the big picture comes quickly into focus. Jesus is God. Jesus came to earth as one of us. And Jesus revealed God the Father to us. Now, as we say a lot here at Grace, we cannot know God unless he reveals himself to us. Would you agree with that? Think about it. If God did not choose to reveal himself to us, we wouldn't know him. And he revealed himself, the book of Hebrews says, in the old days he spoke to us through the prophets, many different ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us through his son. There's a really great connection between John and, and Hebrews. <clears throat> Jesus came to earth as one of us, and Jesus revealed God the Father to us. Pretty much everything else in John is filling in the blanks, so that you will believe in Jesus and that by believing in him, you will have life. Andreas Kostenberger, a New Testament professor extraordinaire at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, has made an interesting connection between Isaiah 55 and uh, John 1. We're just coming off Isaiah, so for those of you who are new, this is very meaningful uh, to those of us who have been here this past year. Remember verse 9, for as the heavens are higher than the earth, so were my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, 
making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to, my, to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So the word is going to come back. It's going to be so having accomplished the purpose for which it was sent. So then Kostenberger points out three ways that God, God's spoken and written word pre-shadow his purposes for the living word. God's son, Jesus, that is. It and he. It, the word of God. He, Jesus, is sent by God to accomplish a particular purpose. Two, he unfailingly accomplishes this purpose. And three, he returns to God after accomplishing the mission that God had given him to do. Well, so there I go, uh, introducing the book uh, even more. Honestly, today will be much more information than application, and that's okay. Uh, for this series in John, we're going to bring back, at least for a few times, uh, the, the, the panel of elders that we first used in our study of the solas back in the fall of 2017, where elders will come and join me after a short uh, message. Elders will come and we will discuss the truth of what we have been learning or what we are about to learn. Uh, we're going to do that after this uh, prologue is finished. It's going to take three weeks to go through this, these first 18 verses. And then the next Sunday, which will be February 10th, we'll talk about the danger. Now think about this. We're going to talk especially that day about the danger of subordinating truth to practical application. Uh, not eliminating practical application by any means, but by being careful not to succumb to the danger of being bored with truth and looking simply for what does God want me to do and, and coming up with sort of an Americanized version of Scripture in the Bible. If you do this, this, and this, you'll be successful. Well, that's true, and, and the Bible presents that, but it first presents here's what you need to know about God. Then it presents here's what you need to do. So don't get... Don't get discouraged in these first three weeks as we go through this prologue and dig in deeply. But that's February 10th that we're going to talk about that. So for now, let's get to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. Now, we've already read in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. In other words, the Word is Jesus. So let's break down this crucially important verse, understanding in the beginning was Jesus. Jesus was with God and Jesus was God. In the beginning, does that remind you of anything? Of course it does. Remind you of Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. There are several things John communicates by tying the opening words of his gospel to Genesis 1.1. First, he, he puts Jesus apart beyond and above time. Jesus existed before time. Although Genesis 1.1 pointed to the moment where time began. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
John 1.1 puts Jesus even beyond that. In the beginning was Jesus. So John 1.1 puts Jesus' existence to before time began. We know, obviously, if indeed uh, God created the world, he already existed. And Jesus existed alongside of him. So a question that has arisen about John's use of the Greek word logos, most of you know it. Some of you say logos, some of you say logos. So man, we'd really, or logos, and, and I say logos. That's the, the, the short sound on the, the, the O in the Greek. So tomato, tomato, and I don't even know what the other one is. But logos was a Greek word that meant something very differently to Hebrews and to Greeks. For, for, for the Greeks, the logos was a principle, as a rational principle that governed the universe and personal and yet very much a part of what happens in the universe. For the Hebrew, the logos was God's word to his covenant people and to the world. Um, so some people say, well... John is using this to try to attract Greeks to the gospel. Uh, and others would say, no, 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 there's a Hebrew meaning here. It's a Hebrew connection. He's going to, going, going to show that Jesus is the Old Testament person to whom all of Scripture pointed. Just like he said in John 5.39. Look, the Scripture testifies of me. And there's plenty that we've already read that indicates that, G, that John was connecting Lagos more to the Hebrew understanding of the word than the Greek understanding of the word. Uh, D.A. Carson points this out. Since God's word in the Old Testament is God's powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, and salvation, it is right for John to apply it as the title to God's ultimate self-disclosure. The person of his own son. So let me read that again since it's not on the screen. Since God's word in the Old Testament is God's powerful self-expression in creation, revelation, what he shows to us, reveals to us, and salvation, it is right for John to apply it as the title to God's ultimate self-disclosure, the person of his own son. So in the second phrase, the word was with God. John is pointing out that the word, while of the same nature as God, is distinguishable from God. Remember, when you see the name God in the New Testament, it usually refers to God the Father. When you see Lord, it refers to Jesus, not in every single case, but almost, almost. It, 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 sometimes when you think of, the, when you see the name God, you can think of the, the Trinity, the, 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 the full understanding of who God is. But for the most part, the writers are referring to God the Father. And when you see Lord, they're referring to Jesus, which is really interesting when you get into the Septuagint, Churios for Lord, <clears throat> Yahweh, Yahweh is translated in the Greek as Kyrios, 
And Kyrios is translated for us as Lord as it was to the Greeks. We understand that Jesus is Yahweh. When you go to the language at that level, which I didn't intend to. We're already in deep and so sorry about that. But if it'll make sense to some of you. The construction of the Greek that is used um, in this verse uh, usually implies an intimate personal relationship. Someone, some folks think, some scholars think that it's, they're face to face and Jesus is continually moving towards God. That leaves itself open for some really wacky interpretations. But either way, it's an intimate relationship. And we're going to stick with God. Jesus was in intimate relationship with God. And that, of course, implies perfect equality, and yet the Father and the Son are distinguishable. They're both God, and yet Father, Son, Spirit, three persons. Last, the word was God. Our English translation says it clearly. Some heretical translations say that the word was a God based on the construction of the Greek language in this verse. Now look, folks, as I just said, we're already in way deep. To tell you that it is common for a definite predicate noun of the construction placed before the verb to be anarthrous, which means to have no article, really do we need to go there? If you encounter Jehovah's Witness Mormon who says that Jesus was a God, just say, I don't buy it, I don't buy it. Send them to a you know, Greek scholar like David Calvert Ram Whitley. We got plenty of Greek scholars in the, in, in, the, in, in, the, in the place here today. So send them to somebody else. You can be certain that there has been a, an enormous amount of scholarship looking at this verse, scholars looking at this verse and concluding, this says, the word was God. To say, the word was the God does not allow for, for it to be distinguishable. The son and the father to be distinguishable. So that construction is brilliant the way it is written. Literally, this last verse says, the word was himself. Or the last portion of this verse Verse says, the word was himself God. Far better for us to leave verse 1 with C.K. Barrett's assessment. John intends that the whole of his gospel shall be read in light of this verse. The deeds and words of Jesus are the deeds and words of God. If this be not true, the book is blasphemous. What an important verse. John repeats the truth of verse 1 in verse 2 so that he will not be in any way misunderstood. I just want you to know, Jesus was in the beginning with God. I want to make sure you get this. Verse 3 tells us what we're told elsewhere. Jesus was God's agent in all creation, in everything that was created. His role is stated both positively and negatively. Everything that was created was created by Jesus or through Jesus. I need to make that distinction. And there was not anything created that was not created through Jesus. Uh, John makes an interesting distinction that all things were created through him. 
All things were created through him, not by him. He, in, in saying this, he maintains theological consistency with the rest of Scripture that tells us God the Father is the source of all things. And if you want to run that down, if you're a really serious student, write down 1 Corinthians 8.6. It's a good place to see this distinction, distinction made. God the Father is the source of all things. <clears throat> and he created all things through his son, Jesus. <clears throat> Verses 4 and 5 begin to speak of the impact that Jesus had on the world by coming to the world. Life and light are two concepts that John will use extensively in his gospel. He uses the word life 36 times, more than double any other New Testament writer. And he uses the word light 23 times, almost one-third of the times that the word light is used in the New Testament. So just think of how indebted we are to John for our understanding of Jesus as both life and light. In verse 5, we are told that the light shines in the dark and the darkness has not overcome it. Some of you have a translation that says the darkness has not understood the light. <clears throat> While they're both correct. I mean, both implications are true. Probably the best translation is the ES version. The darkness has not overcome the light. Now look, we know that darkness is the absence of light. And when light comes into the darkness, the darkness cannot overcome it unless the source of that life is no longer in play. In Scripture, though, and certainly in John, darkness is far more than just Simply the absence of life. It is evil itself. Many times it's referred to as evil. Men and women uh, chose darkness over light because their deeds were evil. And the light exposes sinful deeds. But the light of Jesus cannot be overcome when it is present. Look, I know this. I know you've experienced this. There are sometimes... I don't know, this could all just be in my head. It could be all psychological rather than spiritual. But I wouldn't be surprised. There are times where people that I've never met before just don't like me. And it's very, nothing has been said. Nothing is just, it's very obvious. They're aware of my presence and they don't like me. Sometimes I wonder, is that because of the presence of the Spirit? Not because there's anything great about me. My goodness, this week I have been confronted with my own Pride and arrogance. It's not about that. But the Holy Spirit living in me brings light. The Holy Spirit living in you brings light. And as long as that light shines, the darkness is not going to like it. <clears throat> That's why the darkness of a lost world hates the light. And seeks to snuff it out whenever it's able. But the darkness will never overcome the light. That's good news. That's good news for you if you find yourself in a particularly dark place right now. For any number of reasons. I don't know why... It feels very dark for you. 
It feels very dark for me in the broad sense. There are times when I sense the life and the light of Christ all around, especially when I'm with my brothers and sisters in Christ. But honestly, does it not feel dark in our day? It's good news that the darkness will never overcome the light. May the light of Christ shine on you this morning and cause you to live in light of the hope of eternity that we have in Jesus Christ. So you may be well disappointed with the very limited amount of application that has been given today to know that we are coming to the end of the sermon. You may be very excited that we're coming to the end of the sermon. We got some Methodists with us, so we're... We just want you to know we try to get out early so we can beat the Methodists to the restaurants. But, you know, it's tough, but we make an effort uh, to do it. <clears throat> Look, it'd be, it'd be nice to have several points of application to help us apply the truth of what we have read. And I'm telling you, if you're here for the first time today, today is not a typical Sunday morning sermon. It is going to be like this for two or three Weeks And I hope by the end of it, and especially as we move forward from that time, you'll see the benefit of taking the time to dig in to the truth of this amazing prologue in John's gospel. In home groups this week, you will have opportunity as a group to think about the implications of the truth that we find in John 1, 1 through 5. And you're going to be amazed at how much uh, there is to apply to your life just from understanding this truth, what about the rest of John's gospel? My goodness, you, you just think about how Jesus witnessed to many individuals and he had many encounters with unbelievers in groups of people and the different ways that he talked with them and the different ways, the different things that we learn about sharing Christ with others from his encounters with Nicodemus and and, and uh, the woman, the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, and um, the Pharisees and, and the Jewish leaders, we will learn a great deal about how we live in this world that rejects the, the authority of Christ and some, though, who are hungry for Christ. So... We are going to be repeatedly challenged and encouraged and directed to live in the light of our union with Christ and to live with the hope of eternity in view. The question we have addressed this morning, though, is the most important question anyone will ever answer. Who is Jesus and what do I have to do with him? What does he have to do with me? What do I have to do with him? What is my relationship with him now? What should it be? Do I believe or not? Lewis said it very clearly. You're not given the option of saying, oh, well, you know, I think he's something less than what Scripture says. And no place are we confronted more directly in the Gospel of John, as to who Jesus was. Remember, C.K. Barrett said, either these words are true or they're blasphemous. 
I hope you have a little better handle on them today. Now look, this manuscript will be up on the website for you to be able to go back and dissect this more carefully if you want to. Uh, rather than just even listening to it. So you can flip around, do some Bible study if you're interested. But I hope you have a little better handle on these words after today. And if you have not believed, if you have never come to the point where you have believed that Jesus came to this earth, He came because we are all sinners and separated by God from our our, by our sin. And there, look, if we are born estranged from God, there's no way to make our way back to God. Somehow the American understanding of relationship with God is, well, I'm right with God to begin with, and if I don't mess it up, then I'm okay. The default position is I'm good with God as long as I don't mess it up. No, Scripture presents this in John very clearly. The position is, I'm a sinner and I have no hope of getting to God apart from Him revealing Himself to me. And me understanding and believing that Jesus came to earth, lived the life I was incapable of living, and died the death that I deserve, at which the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus for our sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because your sin, my sin was on him that day. And the father turned his back. Jesus absorbed the all the wrath of God that is due sinners. And those who believe are completely forgiven. If you've never believed, may I encourage you to cry out in your heart, Silently, even in this moment, oh God, I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. I believe that Jesus came to die for me. Save me, dear Lord. In Jesus' name. And when you do that, you need to come saying, my whole life is yours. Everything about me is yours. That doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. Like I say, this week... Confronted with my own pride, my own arrogance. In very poignant ways, we will always, till the day we die, be confronted with our sin. But as believers in Christ, we live in the knowledge that we, in the meal we participated today, as it indicates, that our sins are forgiven in Christ. And there's nothing like that. In, your, in the whole world. C.S. Lewis called himself the most reluctant convert ever. Because he knew it required his whole life. He was so glad that he came to Christ. And as are we. That he made the decision. My life is yours. So if you have not. I hope you will repent of your sins. And put your trust in Jesus. We're going to close our time by reading our text. John 1, 1 through 5. One last time. I'm going to ask you to stand. If you would. <clears throat> In the beginning was the word. Worship team, you guys, come on. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. And the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. 
All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.